Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So I was praying that I was thinking about a time when, um, as a brick mason, when I was in my young 20s, and uh, I was out of work for 10 months, and it was a difficult season in my life. And, you know, at that time, it was easy to be off in the winter because it's hard to lay brick uh, when mortar freezes, and mortar's made with water, and we know the freezing point of water. Uh, it's hard to work outside when the conditions aren't in favor of that. So it was pretty accustomed to sit at home during the winter, but not during the spring and not during the summer. And that time, 10 months into it, uh, I had done not only winter, but spring and summer. And it was difficult. It was challenging. Um, On unemployment, that was kind of, I knew the system back then. As a brick mason, I knew how to go to the, you have to actually go to the office back then. You don't have to do that now and stand in line and do the whole routine. I knew how to work it because my bricklayer brothers taught me, this is what you need to do. It's like, okay, I was a novice at everything. But during that same season, the Lord challenged me. And then as a family, Lily and I, in our giving at that time, And uh, I remember standing in the church that we were attending at the time in Libertyville and uh, just desiring to give to a mission offering that they had going. And they had their goal of some $25,000. And I was 10 months unemployed, and I knew that we couldn't do much to help in that goal. But I still felt I wanted to give. I wanted to fill out the pledge card. And we don't, here at this church, don't even do pledge cards. But this was like... A teaching moment for me because there was a point so Lord I don't even know if I can afford five bucks a week but I tell you what I'll give you a half percent above my tithe of anything you give me each week and so that's what I wrote down a half a percent of whatever my that's what they got they may have wanted a fixed number but they didn't get the fixed number they got my half a percent and that year the Lord blessed me with the most fruitful year that I had experienced up to that point in my life. And uh, that half percent, I think it averaged about $10 a week. I was thinking, I can't even afford five bucks. And the Lord was thinking, let me show you, I can, I can double that five. You give me five, I'll give you 10. Now, I'm not saying that that's how it works. And God is not let make a deal with God in that sense. Lord, if I give you five, will you give me 10? It's, just being faithful to what he put on our heart to do. And I didn't know what a half a percent would lead to that year, but it was a step of faith. And so maybe it's just that thought and a reminder to us that the Lord just calls us to be faithful with the things that he has given us, that we might participate in the call that he has placed upon our lives. And that actually became an experience of not only um, 
going through that year and being faithful to that pledge, but we decided to double it the next year, to double it the next year, to double it the next year. And so that half percent went to 1% to 2% to 3%. By that time, we were moving out to California and all that stuff went away. We went from probably, I was talking to my granddaughter about this yesterday, probably went from a c- combined income of maybe 35 to 36. This is back in the 90s, but 35 to 36 dollars an hour. We moved to California in order that I could attend the school of ministry and our income went down to 1650 an hour. And so 30, you know, it's almost half. And we had a house that we sold that we were paying right around 400 a month and our rent out in California was a thousand a month. So we doubled our cost of living, but cut in half what we were receiving. And uh, it was challenging. And yet two years later, I was able to graduate. We came back, had just enough money left over from our selling our home to put a down payment on a home in this area once again. And uh, here we are still. I mean, God provided. It wasn't like there was an abundance. We learned some things. I became an excellent pizza maker during that time because, one, we couldn't afford to buy them out there. And number two, it wasn't the thing to make pizzas at home at that time. It started to become a thing. And so we just learned to adapt with what the Lord gave us. And God provided from a uh, guy who would tithe, actually John Randall's father, Jim, was a butcher, and so he would tithe meat to the church. The janitors, because we only made six fifty an hour, they gave us first dibs on the meat. So hamburger, until it came out of our ears. But uh, we learned to adapt to what the Lord was giving us, and God provided. And uh, it always wasn't what we thought we needed, but it was always what we needed, and God brought us through. And so sometimes that happens in church life as well, where we have to, and we've had that challenge through 31 years of ministry. We have the income coming in, and it's like we have to adapt to the income that's coming in to the fellowship. And so we do. We adapt to it, and um, God continues. I and mean, here we are 31 years later. So whether in the church or in our homes, let's continue to trust the Lord And sometimes he might be challenging us. And it's like, Lord, this doesn't even make sense. And yet he keeps putting it on our heart. And so he's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to surrender this to you. And I'm going to trust in you. And then we can sit back and watch him work. And I think we have. And not only in our own family, but here in this ministry, we've watched the Lord do amazing things. Well, today we're going to pick up our study Uh, Picking up in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And Jesus had, where we left off last week, it was the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And we closed out with the Lord telling the people as Lazarus came out of the grave with um, the grave clothes still on him and the Lord saying, loose him. And what a tremendous example of the power of Jesus Christ to free those who have been held in the bondage of sin, that Jesus comes to set us free. <laughs> and the Bible tells us in John 8:38, if the Son of Man sets you free, you shall be free indeed. 
And this was the work that Jesus did in the presence of the people. We do read in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus raising a young boy who um, had just died. They were in the funeral right when Jesus came into the town of Nain and He's actually stopped the funeral and touched the boy, and the boy resurrected back to life. So it wasn't the first time that Jesus brought someone back from the dead. But in that situation, it could have been thought that, you know, maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe he just needed somebody to give him a little shake and wake the boy up. Um, Lazarus, on the other hand, had been in the tomb for four days. Now, I didn't say this last week, but we do know that when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus and with um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they wrapped the body of Jesus and put the grave clothes on him. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that they had a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe in those wrappings. So it wasn't really like just a fine little thin mummy strip wrapped around the body, a hundred pounds of ointment that went into the wrappings that just imagine that, that if you weren't really dead and they wrap you up tight like that, you are soon going to be dead because they'd make sure they suffocate you with such grave clothes. But with this situation, there was no question. In fact, Martha had told the Lord, O King James, I still love it to this day. By now he stinketh. Lord, don't let him remove the stone that covers the tomb. I mean, there's going to be a stench, an odor coming out of that place. And yet Lord had them do that. He called forth for Lazarus to come forth as it is accredited to... um, an old preacher of old that if he hadn't have said Lazarus, all the tombs would have emptied, but he named him and he came forth. He was set free. And it really speaks about the power of God to set us free. Now, as we get into John 11 again to pick up the account, we discover that the religious rulers now have even a greater problem. Because now they have a living, walking testimony of the power of God to set someone free. And they didn't like it. By John chapter 12, we will read that they had decided that not only do we need to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus needs to die. It wasn't enough that he died once. Now they need to make sure he's surely dead. Because he was a testimony of the power of Christ. And I prayed this morning as we come together to worship, as I was even walking through the parking lot before I made it into the building, that the Holy Spirit would just fill us with such a testimony of the power of Christ in our lives today. Not that he will, you know, resurrect us from the dead. Right now, I think I'm pretty sure I'm looking around. We're all living. Pretty sure. Maybe halfway through, there'll be a question whether somebody's actually awake or not. But I think we're, we're living. But how about the power of Christ to awaken in our hearts and fill us with his desire for our lives? Let's go ahead and get into the text today. As I said, we're going to begin in John chapter 11. 
picking up in verse 45 through 52. I'm not going to take the whole of John 11. There's a few more verses that we'll want to get to, but remember we're doing a chronological journey through the Bible. And there's a few other things that take place prior to picking up in verse 53. But we're getting close. Jesus is near in Jerusalem And there's just a few more things before the triumphal entry. And today we're going to look at the plot to kill Jesus. In John 11, verses 45 through 52, Jesus' third telling of his death and resurrection. In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And then we're going to go to Mark 10. And greatness in serving. And we'll close out with Mark 10, greatness in serving. So let's go ahead and read The context, picking up in verse 45 down to verse 52, the word of God tells us in John 11, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. And some of them went away and told the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, that they would have let him alone. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, not for Israel only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered Abroad. So we begin with this plot to kill Jesus because many people were believing in him. Now, we're not sure of the motive of the people who went to the Pharisees to tell them the things that Jesus had done. Maybe they just wanted to share this good news with their religious rulers. So we're not sure. If the people who went were or had this evil intent, but we do know for sure that the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they gathered a council together and they truly had evil intent against Jesus. John had said concerning the miracles of Christ. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life in his name. And with all the miracles that Jesus had been doing, there were two main outcomes. It's still the same to this day. There are those who believe. They saw the miracles of Christ and they believed. Others had seen these signs and they still did not believe. The chief priest and the Pharisees 
They said, they asked, what shall we do for this man works many signs? They could not denounce the signs. Lazarus was a problem for them. And yet still, they chose not to believe. That is no different to this day. There are those who hear the, of the work of Jesus, and they hear the word of God, and they surrender their lives to the Lord in faith. They believe, and others hear the same gospel being preached, and they refuse to believe. In John 12, verses 9 and 11, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, speaking of Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. In verse 11, because on account of him, many Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Lazarus became a living, walking testimony of the power of Christ. And people came to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus. And they went away from the encounter believing that Jesus was and is the Christ. So the chief priests in verses 47 through 48, they knew that they had a problem, even though they had seen the works, they had seen the signs. They understood that if they let Jesus alone, everyone would believe in him. And it's the latter half of verse 48 that gives us the heart of these religious rulers. They were more worried about their place and their nation. If we leave them alone, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Personally, I believe they were more worried about their place than their nation. They had a position, even though they were under Roman law and rule at that time, they had a position of authority within the nation of Israel, and they liked it, and they did not want anything to interrupt it. A position of power in a nation by a political party, not wanting to have anyone interrupt that power. Does it remind you of anything you see going on uh, in our world today? I think we see it happen uh, every two and four years. Let's just keep it going. So the resurrection of Lazarus caused the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're not mentioned here, but they called this emergency session of the Sanhedrin. And the hardness of their hearts over those who ruled over Israel, they knew that Jesus worked many signs, yet they still rejected him. And they knew that if they let Jesus alone, everyone would believe in him. They knew it. They knew that he worked these signs. In Acts 4.16, it says, What shall we do to these men? Once again, now the disciples, the apostles are on trial. And they say, the religious rulers, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle had been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. Even after Jesus' ascension into heaven and Jesus working now in the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, the religious rulers still saying we can't deny the work that's taken place. We cannot deny it. 
And they also knew if they let him alone, everyone would believe. In Luke 8, 12, it says, Those who are by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They heard, they saw the miracles, and yet Satan was hardening their hearts that they would not believe, that they could not be saved. But they also knew that if they let Jesus alone, then it was for them a political thing. Rome would come and take away our place and take away our nation. Jesus asked in Matthew 16, verse 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here we find with the, many of the religious rulers that they put their position and their nation before their Messiah. thing is that Rome did come and take away their place. It's known as the First Jewish-Roman War, beginning in A.D. 66, and what took place there. And we know that Herod the Great um, had commissioned the uh, remodel of the temple. And uh, this began before Christ was even born. They began remodeling the temple. And it wasn't until A.D. 66 that they finished the project. And historians tell us at that time at the finishing of the remodeling of the temple. So the temple was just expanded. Herod wanted to make it great. And in fact, Titus, when he conquered Jerusalem, he had told his men, do not harm the temple or the temple grounds in order that it would stand as a testimony to the world of the great power of Rome. But things didn't work out as Titus had hoped. And there was... Uh, an incident that had taken place the day prior to the Roman uh, legions breaking into Jerusalem and to Temple Mount, where the Jewish zealots had actually killed a number of the Romans. And so the Romans were angry when they took the city. And one of the soldiers had threw a flaming spear in through one of the windows of the temple that caught the tapestry on fire. And at that point, the temple had been overlaid with gold. And so as the temple burned, the gold melted into the seams, the joints of the temple. And so they wanted the gold. So how do you get it out? Tear it down stone by stone. And they leveled the temple. They thought Rome would come and take away their place and nation. And that did happen in AD 70. The war actually didn't end until uh, the siege on Masada that was there in AD 72 to 74, where finally there in Masada, a palace that King Herod had built for himself on top of a, a high mesa and with a siege ramp that the Romans had built up against the wall of the Placed there in Masada. And to this day, and I've witnessed it with my own eyes, you can be on top of Masada and you can look down and you can see where the Romans camped. The encampment stones, very orderly, but the stones are still there on the desert floor. And they had built a siege ramp 
And they had battered through the wall only to find that the Jews had built an interior wall. And the Jews inside knew that they only had one night left and that the Romans would be through in the next morning. And so they met the men in the synagogue and they determined that they would go forth and kill every man, woman, and child rather than be taken by the Romans. And that the last man, they drew straws for this. In the Jewish mind, if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. And so the men drew straws that the last man would kill himself. And the only reason they know about this is because a couple of women hid some children in one of the areas where they stored water, and they were able to tell the account of Masada. And this really um, had me thinking about this because right now Israel is at war, and one of the things that Israeli soldiers do is when they become part of the Israeli army, they go to Masada, and they say a pledge, never again. Never again are we going to let this happen to our nation. And they are in one of those never again moments. But Rome did come, destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., ended the siege on Masada by 74 A.D., but then came the Barcopa revolt in A.D. 32-35, where the emperor Hadrian was so done with Israel at this point. His historians tell us that Hadrian, when they conquered Jerusalem at that point, that the Romans plowed the city with oxen. They just leveled it, plowed it with oxen, rebuilt it as a Roman colony, and renamed it as Syria Philistia, or the Philistines, was what he was going after, the great enemy of Israel. And it's where we get the name Palestinian from today. But it was a name given to that area by the emperor Hadrian. And then he also at that time destroyed all the um, lineage, the genealogies that were kept in the temple, and he also uh, scattered the Jews from their nation. They had said, if we let this man be, then Rome will come and take away our place and nation. But what they did not know, because they did not receive Christ and rejected him, Rome came and took their nation. It was opposite of what they thought. Matthew 20, 37 and 38 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you. They were not willing. And at that time, Caiaphas, and John tells us being the high priest, that year. Caiaphas was the son-in-law to Aeneas. Aeneas was the true high priest. If you read Old Testament law, a high priest is high priest until he dies. There's not a high priest that year and another high priest the next year. But under Roman rule, the Romans, trying to control Israel, they appointed those who were high priest. At this time, Caiaphas had been appointed the son-in-law to Aeneas, but he is merely appointed high priest, not the actual high priest. 
But yet still, Christ, or God, used his office to have him prophesy. So his prophecy is true, because he was in the office of the high priest. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And John tells us that he said this not on his own, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation Israel, but also for all who are the children of God that scattered abroad. It's expedient. It's profitable. It's to our advantage. It's beneficial for us. John repeats it in John 18:14. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And he gave commentary, not only for Israel, but for all who are the children of God. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, he gave his life a ransom for many. We'll come back to that word ransom in our third point. But not only for Israel, but all who gathered together as the children of God. Jesus said in John 10, 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I almost also must bring, that they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, that under Christ both Jew and Gentile becoming part of the family of God. So they sought Jesus, from that day forward, verse 53, they plotted to put him to death. They were worried about the loss of their nation and their place in that nation. Even though the people, according to Mark eleven eighteen, they were astonished at the teachings of Jesus. They sought how they might destroy him. They also wanted Lazarus to die. And in John 12, 10 and 11, the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because of him many of the Jews believed in Jesus. And so there's no greater witness, and we said this last week as well, than someone who has been dead, now walking, alive. No greater witness and that's true to those who have been spiritually dead as well. Jesus, when he called Paul to preach to the Gentiles, this is what he commissioned him to do in Acts twenty six eighteen, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the work of Jesus Christ to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sin, to be part of the inheritance of God, because we've been sanctified by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a result of this, Jesus no longer walked openly, verse 54 but went from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, 
and remained there with his disciples. So he moved, I think it's about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. He went to an area that he wasn't in close contact, but this is just staging ground for Christ. He's getting ready for the triumphal entry. May it be that we would be living testimonies of the power of Jesus to change lives. May that be true for us to this day. May we be those living and walking testimonies to others. Let's go ahead and get over to Matthew chapter 20. And just three verses, a very short portion that we're going to look at at this moment, where Jesus for a third time tells of his death and resurrection. And he tells us in Matthew 20, verse 17, down through 19, Then Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to him, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And on the third day, he will rise again. So here we have Jesus in John uh, 11:54. He went to a remote area about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. But now Matthew has him heading towards Jerusalem again. And as they are going, you can envision many people following this is Passover season. Josephus recorded in one of the Jewish Passovers in his lifetime, and he lived during the time of Christ. He recorded of some two million people showing up for Passover in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have the number of people. He gave us the number of lambs that were sacrificed, 120,000. Yes, that was the number. So you take a lamb for every family, you come up with a number of around 2 million plus. They are making their way. Many people are making their way to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is in the forefront. They're on their way, but he took his apostles aside. And he told them for the third time of what was about to happen. He gives a little more detail here. Speaking about his betrayal, which means that someone in their group would betray our Lord, that he would be condemned before the scribes, but also delivered to the Gentiles, that the Jews and the Gentiles would have a role in his death, his mocking, his scourging, his crucifixion. But also for a third time, he speaks of his resurrection. And so this is found in Matthew's gospel. The three times in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Matthew 17, 22 through 23, and here in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, he did speak about his resurrection in two other places. Didn't mention his death, but if you're going to rise up from the dead, somehow you died. So without mentioning the death, the three occasions, he mentions both his death and resurrection on two occasions. In Matthew 17, 9 and 26, 32, he mentions his resurrection only. Yet the disciples did not comprehend what Jesus was speaking to them, even though they had heard it now three times. They did not quite understand what the Lord was saying to them. But here we find that one would betray, 
Religious rulers would condemn Jesus. They would deliver him to the Gentiles. And all this would be in fulfillment of Scripture. Because according to the Word of God, one would have to betray him. One would have to deny him. Both the Jews and the Gentiles would condemn him. In reality, Christ died for the sins of the world according to Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 So... The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. This is one of the essential foundations of our faith. It was on the Christ that Jesus bore the penalty of our sins, where he paid the price required by God in order that we might be healed, in order that we might be set free, in order that we might become part of the family of God. First Peter 2.24 tells us that he himself bore in his own body on the tree, our sins, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, for by whose stripes you were healed. After the paying the price of our sins, Jesus was buried, and then on the third day, he rose again, just as he had told his disciples. Jesus' resurrection, though, it did not make him the Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ declared him to be the Son of God. It wasn't that Jesus had to die and rise again to become the Son of God. Jesus was the Son of God. And the resurrection from the grave proved so. Romans 1, 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. In Acts 10, 40 through 42. And God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The disciples should have anticipated the Lord's death. And we read about this and we might look at this saying, Come on, guys, why didn't you get it? For the third time, he told you that this was going to take place. We must not forget that they had seen his body when it had been beaten prior to going to the cross. They had seen the scourging, the aftermath of it. Maybe they didn't physically watch him being scourged, but no doubt they had seen his flesh that had been torn. They saw him hang on the cross with nails being driven into his hands and feet. They saw the spear thrust into his side. They saw him being buried with that hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did when they laid them in Joseph's tomb. They saw the seal of the stone. Yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. And it was this, the disciples were caught by surprise. They heard that the tomb was empty and they had to run Peter and John to go check it out to see if it was so. It caught them by surprise. Even when Jesus on that first day appeared in the room where they were hiding behind locked doors, 
They were caught by surprise. And I wonder at the Lord's second coming if we'll be caught by surprise as well. Lord, we always knew you were coming, but we didn't know it was going to be today. (laughs) Jesus died and rose again that we might find life. And not only for the Jews, but for those of us who are not Jewish, that we together become part of the family of God. Then we close out today's teaching in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, I'm making my way over there. 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Have you ever came to Jesus like that in prayer? (laughs) Not thy will be done, Lord, but mine. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, verse 37, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We can. (laughs) And Jesus said, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on the right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with James and John. Now, it wasn't because... They were mad that, James, John, what are you thinking of? How could you even ask Jesus this? I think, personally, they were mad as, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> Man, they beat us to it. We, I was going to ask Jesus that. But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentile, lords over them, lords it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So James and John, they come to Jesus. Matthew tells us actually his mother And uh, we know that James and John, they were cousins. And so this is aunt. The sons of Zebedee coming and asking this question, but mom came and asked it first. The boys are there. They might have been kind of like, oh, mom, you shouldn't have asked that. And they're the ones that like, mom, ask this question. But... They're acting innocent. They just want the place, the right and left-hand side. But Jesus told them three times that he was going to die. Jesus told them that he was going to be crucified. And yet they're asking for this place. They're looking for the power when he revealed himself as the Messiah. They did not quite understand the mission of Christ. 
It wasn't until after his resurrection that they would gain this understanding. So right now they're in a place where they just don't have enough information to put it all together. But the Lord would bring him into that place of understanding. He would empower them with the Holy Spirit to help them put these things together. But this is not the way. We've read, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and I may have read it again last week from 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, but I want to back up to verse 5 this week. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders, to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Jesus goes on to talk about being servants and slaves. And the pathway to that is through humility. And right now, James and John, whom Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder, they were not practicing humility here. Jesus said, you do not know what you ask, verse 38. And quite often when we pray, we're like James and John. We pray and we don't really know what we're asking uh, James 4, 2 and 3, it says, You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And quite often when we pray, we just we have the wrong motive. And while James and John believe that they're able to drink from the cup that Jesus was about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that Jesus was about to experience, they had no clue of what that cup actually meant and what the baptism actually referred to. The cup, well, in the Greek, it can be an everyday cup, but here, when speaking about Christ, it's referring to a cup of wrath and a cup of suffering. And in John 18, 11, it tells us that Jesus said to Peter to put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And we'll read about that great prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane by Christ when we get to John chapter 18. But Christ saying, let this cup pass from me. And when speaking of Jesus and that cup, it speaks about his suffering. It speaks about his death, that baptism. Now, I've often said this, baptisma is the Greek word um, that we get baptism from, and it means to immerse, to dip, to be baptized. But I don't know if I've ever read this before, but this week in studying this, uh, one of the commentators said this, to be overwhelmed by some difficult experience or ordeal, to suffer, to undergo. And to be like a flood. Years ago, we were in Hawaii. I'd mentioned or Hawaii. We were in, uh, been to Hawaii, but at this time we were in California. And uh, that first year, we used to go to the beach a lot. I had already said that uh, in the beginning, we didn't have a lot of funds. And so there was a time when... Uh, 
We could on a Sunday afternoon hit the early service at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa and then plan a beach day and uh, jack-in-the-box. You could get a hamburger, a taco, and fries for a dollar. So for four bucks, our kids still hate the tacos, but Lily and I loved them. For four bucks, they could eat the hamburgers, we could have the tacos, and we all had fries. And so it was a good deal. And uh, on the way home from the beach, we could go to um, what is like a Walgreens or a CVS here, and they had ice cream, scooped ice cream for 39 cents. And so it's like, all right, we can we can splurge for ice cream for 39 cents too. So I mean, we could get away with a beach day for like under ten dollars, and so that that was doable. But one time, as we were out there with our friends in the Marquardt and out with the family, and uh, I got caught in a riptide. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a riptide, but they say if you're caught in a riptide, just let the current carry you away, and eventually the riptide will give up. You may be a mile or two out in the ocean by that time, but it'll give up, and they'll come and rescue you. And I was thinking, I don't want the tide to carry me away out into the ocean. So I battled it. I was being overwhelmed. And I fought my way through it, but it was hard. And it was difficult. That is a sense of that baptismal, being overwhelmed in a sense that you're just being like in a flood. And it's going to sweep you away. And sometimes you can't do anything about it. Sometimes it does sweep you away. That's the sense of this word. Jesus was going to come into this place, this baptism that was going to sweep him away. It meant his death upon the cross. In Luke twelve fifty. But I have this baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am until it's accomplished. A lot of times we don't understand how and we see it in John 18 but the depth of the pain that Jesus went through emotionally as human as he faced this crucifixion and the suffering that was coming this cup and baptism and yet the word of God tells us because of the work of Christ in Romans 6 3 and 4 or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death. Just as Christ was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. That we partake in this with Christ. We've been buried with him. And Paul encouraging us there in Romans chapter 6. So let us walk in newness of life. Jesus did this to make the way of our salvation. And Jesus told them, you indeed will. And we know that James became the first martyr. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us about that time, Herod, the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That he first... James, being baptized, overwhelmed, there was nothing he could do about it. He was beheaded because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Because Herod 
Antipas, I believe it was. Actually, this was Herod Agrippa. He had been appointed governor over Judea. He wanted to make himself known. He wanted to appease the Jews, and this is what they did to take the life of James. If you go on, they also arrested Peter, but the Lord allowed Peter to be released by an angel and to escape that death. He wasn't finished at that point. And although John did not suffer death, according to Fox's Book of Martyr, he's the only of the 12 that did not. I mean, Judas hung himself, but the others suffered martyrdom. But John of Fox's Book of Martyrs, this is what he wrote. John, the beloved disciple, was brother to James the Great. And the churches of, I found this interesting, the churches of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, were founded by him. And from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed that he was cast into a cauldron of boiling boiling oil. (laughs) He escaped by miracle without injury. Domitian afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos from where he wrote the book of Revelation. And we know that part of the account in Revelation 1.9, I, your brother, the companion in tribulation and, and kingdom and patience of Christ was on the Isle of called Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Truly, the brothers did share in the cup of suffering and death, but only after they paid Jesus Christ paid the price of that sin. But Jesus told them, this is not my place to give. So to give the right and left, he he never said. Whose position that is, that's up to God the Father. And yet we do know immediately we get the picture of the cross and the two thieves, one on the right and one on the left, that were crucified with him. Again, the disciples, they all kind of moved with indignation against the two brothers. They were mad that maybe they were mad that they didn't ask Jesus first. But yet Jesus taught them about servicehood. He used two terms in the Greek. and We're going to close with this. He used, it's where we get the word deacon from, deaconess. Uh, it means a minister or a servant, and it's one who executes the command of another. And then he used doulos, slave. And that refers to a bond servant, one who is wholly given up his will to another. He has no choice. And of 11 of the 12, and the Apostle Paul as well, they became great examples of what it means to be doulos, of what it means to be slave. And that word ransom it only appears here in uh, Mark's gospel and then again in Matthew's gospel. A ransom, he, the paying the price of the redeemed. It means that you've been by price liberated from some penalty, uh, prison time. It's found when translated from Hebrew into Greek in Exodus 21.30, If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. That Greek word found here in Mark's gospel, but also in Matthew 20, it refers to the payment 
that purchased the freedom of a slave. And it's the idea of Jesus as he paid the price of our sin. He became that ransom for many. And Jesus became that great example of what it means to be both servant and slave. The Word of God tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, becoming in the likeness of men. He, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient even to death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, as servant and slave, he gave himself a ransom for our sins. We can never be the servant that Jesus was, that he is, but we can serve Christ as servants and slaves. As servants, we are to... Execute the commands of Jesus. We're to do what Jesus desires us to do. As slaves, we are to wholly give up our lives over to his will for our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we are willing to do so. To walk in obedience as servants and slaves. Because, Lord, you gave your life a ransom for our sins. You paid the debt through the cup of suffering, through the baptism you experienced, Lord, through your death on the cross. But we thank you, Father, that you resurrected our Savior from the grave. And Lord Jesus, today you are alive and you give life to those who put their faith in you. I pray that we are those, Lord, who not only believe and have received the gift of salvation, but we are those, Lord, who are willing to be both servant and slave. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.